Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, everyone, to the New Books Network. I'm so excited to have you. My name is Lee Pierce. I am the host for the channels in language and media and communications. And today we have a truly fabulous book on our hands with two authors. And the name of the book is Women Rapping Revolution, Hip Hop and Community Building in Detroit by Rebecca Ferruja and Kelly D. Hay. This is a really amazing combination of sort of like cultural studies meets uh, embedded ethnography, meets personal reflection, meets like urban studies. I mean, it's got a little bit of something for everybody. And of course, for me, it's got lots of stuff on language, as well as just all the new hip hop artists to check out that you could possibly ask for. And it takes place, it's a really place-based book, which makes it really interesting. I think right now, especially when so many of us are in shelter in place. So you want like sort of a vicarious visit to another land, this will give it to you. And that place, of course, is Detroit, Michigan, which has long been recognized as the center of musical innovation and social change. And in this book, Rebecca and Kelly draw on seven years of fieldwork to illuminate the important role that women have played in mobilizing a grassroots response to political and social pressures at the heart of Detroit's ongoing renewal and development project. They focus on the foundation, a women-centered hip-hop collective. The book argues that the hip-hop underground is a crucial site where Black women shape subjectivity and claim self-care as a principle of community organizing. Through interviews and just a a really robust, sustained critical engagement with artists and activists, the book also articulates the substantial role that cultural production plays in social, racial, and economic justice efforts. I'm so excited to have Rebecca and Kelly here today. Rebecca, Kelly, do you want to introduce yourselves and tell us more about your work and the book? Um, Sure, I'll start. So my name is Rebecca Ferruja. I'm a professor of media studies in the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. Um, I have a, I guess I've been thinking about and writing about popular music for a really long time since I was a grad student at the University of Iowa. My earlier work focused on women DJs and producers of electronic dance music. And um, I was really happy to move back to this area about a decade ago. And I was really curious um, about whether or not anything was happening with women in hip hop. And luckily, there was an ad in a local paper, the Metro Times, that signaled an event that was happening. And the rest was history. (laughs) That's awesome to be to be back in that place at the time when this study was was emerging. That's very cool. And then Kelly, do you want to do you want to tell us about yourself? Uh, I'm also in the same department as Rebecca. I'm a professor in cultural studies, uh, and I've worked not necessarily in popular music all of my academic career, but I've been engaged in looking at how cultural forms get mobilized by a range of different types of groups, mostly marginalized groups, um, and how they use those forms as some sort of uh, way to articulate voice and to change their living conditions. So in the past, I've worked with Arab American communities around questions of nationalism and, you know, being altar cast as always already terrorists and what their mm-hmm. cultural organizing looks like to 
change that perception. And um, I worked on with that community for a long time through the Patriot Act and other things. Mm -hmm. And but I'm trained as an ethnographer and my dissertation is in ethnography with an Arab American community focused on dance. So Beck and I have dance in common, just very different styles. Sure, sure. And And then how do you two wind up finding each other. I mean, I obviously you're in the same department, but we don't well, often we hired Becca when she was 900 months pregnant with her first child. <laughs> we meant then, cause I got the pleasure of driving her around campus and not letting her walk. Yeah. Uh, and then like a year later, she told me about what she found and invited me to come check it out with her. And it just so happened that the night that she invited me, it was eventful to say the least. Um, I got to witness a, a very young, maybe 21 in a minute year old man with a backpack hit the stage of this collective that we came to study dropping, you know, bitch and hoe language. And he was cut off immediately. And to see a young man get a gender check in a hip hop club was fascinating. And we knew immediately oh. there's a lot going on here. So I, I think that was the day she said, do this with me. And I was like, Oh yeah, totally on board. And that's how it started. Oh, I love that. So you you were there for the inauguration of the project, basically with this with this event advertisement. She found the organization and and went to the first time she she can tell the story, but the first time she went to an event, it was an anniversary party, and so it was a big deal. And she kind of formed contact. She invited me later, so she had already mm-hmm. kind of met her you know, I see. there a little bit, and then then we started the study together. Yeah. Well, do you want to tell the story, or do you want to get? Uh, would you rather just hop into the book? Uh, I think we can just open the book. I mean, I'll just say that, as I said, I just opened the Metro Times and I was like, I'm going to go check out this event. I had a friend go with me a couple of times and it was really crazy to just happen to stumble upon it uh, the night of the two year anniversary party. So um, it was also like the friendliest, you know, one of the friendliest hip hop sure. events in the city I'd seen. They had like balloons and party hats and all these women on the stage. And um, yeah, so I said, you know, we, I wasn't sure what the study was going to be, you know, that's how ethnography works. Um, but I knew it was something that I, that that had potential. So I thought, Hey, maybe I should keep going to this because it was a weekly Tuesday night event. And Mm. I think like a few months later, that's when Kelly first joined me. That's, that's a great story. And then seven years. So you must, so you learn, so we start the book uh, with you telling us about the intersection of this place, right? Detroit that, that, um, you know, we, we've all know where it is geographically, but certainly by the end of this book, Detroit feels and looks very differently than it does in the public imaginary, which is part of what's so fun and interesting about the book, yeah. but also this, this foundation, this hip hop collective. So you want to maybe tell us more about those two sort of like, like, um, like, I guess, subjects of the book, and then maybe anything else along the way that is helpful for the reader. How do you want to do it, Becca? What do you want to take? I'll, I'll start. Okay. Um, Sure. So, you know, in my intro, I said I was happy to move back to the area because I'm Canadian, but I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, right across the river from Detroit. So I was just always really curious and, you know, curious about and fascinated with Detroit, with its history, uh, with its music. I learned some things from my parents growing up and we'd come across the border. But as we mentioned in the preface, I think it, it was mainly like to do stuff in the suburbs, you know, shopping, visiting friends, that sort of thing. And then in high school, um, I, I started taking the tunnel bus across when I wasn't even old enough to drive yet. And I started going to lots of, lots of shows, lots of concerts in downtown in the city's downtown. And, you know, that just, it was an interesting time there in the nineties for the city of Detroit. Um, and, um, and then I got really into, you know, techno and just was 
thought I was the luckiest person in the world to be into this music where it was like born. So then I was in, then I was in that city, I was in the city, like, you know, most Saturday nights going to warehouse parties and stuff. So I sort of always had like this personal musical connection to the city. Um, but really not, not, not being, I think not living on this side of the border and, you know, I don't live in Detroit now. I live in the suburbs. I can own it. But um, just felt like I wanted to take a deeper dive into what was happening in the city, right? Sort of get beyond what you were saying, these sort of like mediated representations of it or just my sort of like in and out experiences with it. So that's kind of what what motivated this. Um, Kelly, do you want to take over? Maybe say something about the foundation. Sure. Uh, my introduction to Detroit was when I first moved here by um, a colleague that Beck and I both have and adore. Her name is Shay Howell, but she's so much more than it. She's a senior colleague and she's a Detroit activist and has been for 40 years. And she's the one, she works with, you know, Jimmy and Grace Lee Boggs and is on the board of the Boggs Center and was a developer of Detroit Summer, which is a big other cultural organization. When I first moved here and got the job at Oakland, it was in 2000. She took me to four Detroit institutions, a bakery, uh, the building that we came to study a lot called the Commons Building, uh, uh, the, the, the Eastern Market, and a bar that was a dive, but historical. And it turned out to be that bar was where we studied the foundation. It was the old Miami. So the institutions that I came to love came from somebody close to my intellectual home and my activist home. And so that's my intro into Detroit. And I'd enjoyed its music and was starting to understand the differences between, you know, this murder capital, allegedly, and right, what I right. do. Um, but I didn't study it, per se, until mm-hmm. Becca invited me to. And then that's when the realness of Detroit versus its public imaginary and its people that are the most invested in shaping a city that I've ever met in my life. That's the joy of this project is that you cannot understand Detroit hip hop without understanding the artist's commitment to their city. Um, And that's really what we show you in the book is the role that cultural production plays in social change and the way that people claim rights to the city. I mean, there's many other things too, but that was something that motivated us and captivated us from the beginning. Yeah. And speaking of um, commitments, you actually have two other kind of, I mean, you wouldn't call them authors, but they're the authors of your forewords right? Uh, and- that obviously aren't here. And that's Piper Carter and Mahogany Jones. And I thought maybe a little bit um, about those two, since they seem, they seem to be very central figures in this. Yeah. Okay. You start, Becca. <laughs> There's too many stories. I know. <laughs> hard. Well, how much time do we have? Um, so Piper Carter is was pretty much the, the woman who organized the foundation. She moved back to Detroit in 2009 from New York, where she was um, a fashion photographer. Her mom became ill. She moved back to the city. She decided she wanted to stay. She wanted to um, just dive deeper into social justice work. And she told us, you can read more about it in the book, but she explained to us how when she got here, she was really surprised that there wasn't, you know, or she really longed for a stronger presence of women in the local hip hop scene. So this is what led her to, um, to find Ms. Corona, who's most famous for her role opposite Eminem in Eight Mile as the, the lunch truck rapper named Vanessa in that biopic. So she went to her and she went to um, Invincible Ill Weaver, um, who also was an established hip hop MC here. And she said, Can you help me? Like, can we start to, can we organize so that we can have some kind of space for women in hip hop? 
So when I first went to that event, you know, Piper was up there emceeing. She she does it all, right? Emceeing, she dances, she sings, she raps. So, um, yeah, so we... So that's sort of how we first came to know Piper. And then, you know, the foundation was a collective. So sometimes people come and go. There was like a core group that really stuck with it for a while. And that's mainly who we feature in the book more than others. But Piper then becomes, you know, what we talk about in ethnography is a key informant. So she, because she was there from beginning to end, um, she's the person we had the most connection with. And because her role was to, organize artists you know like artists have busy lives they have multiple jobs they're trying to do their own pr for their you know for their artistry um they're writing music making music they're doing all that so piper is sort of like the organizer of that so she's still someone we work with regularly when we can um and so we were very honored that when we asked her if she would write uh, one of the forwards for our book um that she she was really excited to do it. I think she did a great job. So maybe um, hey, Mahogany, is that okay, Beck? Yeah, I just handed it over to you. Oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear. Um, Mahogany was uh, not necessarily an original host, but she ended up being the most enduring host the foundation had in the time we were there. Uh, originally, Ms. Corona started out as the host, and then uh, Mahogany Jones and a woman named Nicknack did it together. And then Nicknack, for a bunch of reasons, um, stepped down. And so Mahogany was it, the sole MC host for a long time. And she also became my poetry teacher because I do a little bit of spoken word. And she really helped me, and so did Ms. Corona. Um, and she, they became very, very close. Mm-hmm. So Piper and Mahogany were probably our closest, and Ms. Corona, our closest contacts. There were a few other artists as well. But because Mahogany was the host, and besides Piper probably put the most time in, uh, it made sense that we would ask her to contribute to the foreword. And it was interesting because unlike Piper, who's from Detroit and moved to New York, with Mahogany was the other way around. Mahogany's mm-hmm. a New Yorker who moved here in the early 2000s and just liked it so much, I guess had such a positive experience with the people in the city that she decided to make it her home for a really long time. Yeah. She called herself a transplant for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And their, their forwards are great because I love having in a book that's so much about voice voices. It's cool to have so many voices <laughs> start the book off, right? It really sets, sets the tone as opposed to just the, that kind of usual layout of the of the landscape. There's like all of these perspectives that you get immersed in before you start to get to the central arguments of the book, which is where we probably should head now or else we're never going to get to any of the book. So you talk about um, what what hip hop, what it sort of, you said you have this word sensibilities, which is cool both because it's about like how people think and feel about hip hop, but but also like literally the, the senses, right? So not just the thoughts, but also all of its all of its kind of material impact on the area. And you look at Detroit, in particular, in relationship to its po- to its bankruptcy, right? The post bankruptcy issues that came out about, um, you know, it's been a long time coming, but especially for most of us, the the 08 financial collapse. So um, maybe we want to set the scene there before we hop into some of the things you set you say about the vulnerable mavericks and the gender queer issues. Sure. sure. Well, okay. it was it was like you know, sort of a confluence of events. Like Piper starts us in two thousand nine. We find it in twenty eleven. In 2012, we're pretty invested in interviewing people and going to lots of different events. And, and right, like this is the, this, this is the exact time that uh, the city declares bankruptcy. And then like 
quickly starts to re- recover from this, but not without a lot of loss to, you know, the people who've held down the fort, right? The people who've been here this whole time, who've endured through what happened to the city, you know, for, for generations, frankly, a lot of those people have really um, strong roots here that, that go beyond, you know, their, their lives. And we just began, you know, like Kelly's the one who kept saying, you know, we're trying to figure out what was going on here. And the reason that took seven years to write it. And we were like, finally, she was like, this is a movement study. You know, this isn't just about women getting on stage performing or trying to give more visibility to women in hip hop. It's that intimately connected. We learned from our interviews and field work to the people who that are here and what they're experiencing. So like thinking about right. How, who had sort of control of the city during bankruptcy and how city council lost that control and the people from here lost that control. And then how quickly the mainstream press narrative about the city changed to become one of like recovery. Um, But then the sort of, at least it emerged a little bit in the mainstream press, this sort of talk of the emergence of these two Detroits now, which is what we spend some time on. Because while it was becoming sort of a, a more inviting city in, in some ways or appealing city, I should say, to, you know, mostly suburbanites, most of whom are white, to come to the city to enjoy, you know, new fancy restaurants and baby shop boutiques and all these things. Um, we just think it's really important to talk about, and I know it doesn't it didn't just happen here, but to talk about the gentrification that was happening in the city and how it impacted um, black Detroiters, and then how it is that you can use something like you know music or culture and art to to have a voice where maybe your voice you know in, in a environment where your voice isn't um, readily heard or isn't you know sort of in the in the papers and that sort of thing. Yeah, right. and um, do you want to give us maybe what is that? Right, what is that? What is I mean, you've you've mentioned a little bit sort of the way that it's not the same as maybe what we saw in the well, I don't know. Like one thing I thought about when I was reading this is this that 2011, I think it's 2011, made in Detroit Chrysler commercial for the Super Bowl that was the number. It's the, it's the most expensive commercial of all time. So thinking about like what what even that kind of superficial corporatist version of quote the real Detroit looks like versus what you see in the so maybe a lay of the landscape about. I don't know if you had to if you had to like set a scene for a movie based on your experience with the collective and your perspective on Detroit. Kind of what are some key themes that that you would think would emerge? Oh, it would be unrecognizable. To yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. there would be neighborhood associations. There would be multi generational events. There would mm-hmm. be people working together. There would be not a lot of people in suits. There would be outdoor. Uh, uh, musical spaces where people congregate. And it was in these spaces that people politicked, right? They took over downtown spaces in the city and used music as a way to mobilize people. So it's very different than a shoot 'em up kind of, you know, uh, film with the five brother films that, you know, uh, Marky Mark and the guy from uh, Outcast did. It's, it's not like that. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> that some of the themes that would have to be debased or debunked would be urban renewal. What we do in the book is show that urban renewal is like urban removal because we have to ask at whose expense has the comeback emanated or emerged. Uh-huh. And it's been by the local population is pushed further out. The 7.2 miles of the main part of the city where the investments are, are is flourishing and things are still troubling for the four out of five Detroiters that live there and work somewhere else. 
Right. Yeah. And you've also, it's also sort of like for whom is urban a problem? Mm-hmm. Right. Cause like for there, need, for there to need to be renewal, then there have to be like people looking at urban going, oh, that thing's bad. But yet there's this whole side of what Detroit looks like that it doesn't get mentioned when we're talking about how Detroit needs to be cleaned up and modified. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want to say anything else or do you want to move on to um, the, the chapter on gender queer? Because I, I would like to talk about some of the intersectional components, because obviously, you know, black women and hip hop is a big focus, but you also do a great job of bringing in some other identities that um, that complicate yeah, the picture. Yeah. OK, so do you just want us to talk or do, do you have a question motivating it? Nope. I was just kind of interesting about. Well, yeah, I guess if, if you want it to be a question, I'm, I'm interested for the reader of this, how the genderqueer identity intersects with other identities when you're looking at this hip hop collective. Well, we certainly encountered a whole lot of people in the well, I wouldn't that were not gender conformist, right, that they either called themselves gender nonconformist or mm-hmm. they were part of the trans community or they were, you know, women identified, but not necessarily feminist, or they were men supporting women. And so we tried to capture the intersections of, you know, who makes this community. And so we did focus on men and women, but we talked about how within those categories, there was a lot of fluidity. Um, and so we focus on uh, gender queer doesn't just, uh, is not just trying to put gender and sexuality together and leave them alone. Uh, it means that you're queering sexuality and gender when you don't conform to either one of the normative ways of being those things. And we have men that look like the quintessential hip hop bad boy that are the softest, sweetest community oriented people that you can find, but they also have another face that they wear when they're performing. So uh, the gender queer is, is, is kind of queering what normativity is um, in on one level. And it also gives you different looks of what sexuality is like Miss Corona is calls herself masculine of center, right? So she sees herself as feminine, but not uh, traditional, um, you know, hegemonic femininity, right? It's her flavor um, that she wears in a more masculine style. So we capture mm-hmm. that. And then when we do the men, we, we capture, I think, some of the most vulnerable men and the toughest men that have supported women in hip hop in Detroit's underground as long as we were there. So that's kind of what we're trying to capture. And that's why we single out uh, uh, a masculine of center you know, figure in the hip hop community and then why we focus on the men that we do and the other part. Uh, and then we embody, you know, a lot of different modes, uh, toolkits as we analyze their music, whether it's signifying or something mm. more subtle. And I, do you want to? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, I was going to say, I think it's important also to to recognize that it's not like all of Detroit hip hop was supportive of the foundation. You know, we heard lots of times yeah, people talk about how, oh, people don't want to come here because there's too many lesbians or, you know, the sort of undercurrent of homophobia or Ms. Corona, who definitely has the skills to have, you know, been a, a major label artist, but because she didn't conform to sort of ideas of hegemonic femininity, you know, that didn't happen for her. And I love it. We talk about this in the book, for an example, um, her, her saying, if you, if you got a rack, what, oh, shoot, what is if it? If you got a rack, you're not making a stack. Yeah. Rack, <laughs> like it's really hard for, for women to make it here. And I think that was, that was the impetus for the foundation because women either didn't feel comfortable getting up on the stage, um, in the, the sort of climate of Detroit's hip hop underground, you know, 10 years ago, um, 
or, you know, just because it was sort of a different scene, people don't know what to do with it. Um, it, it, didn't, it wasn't like a club culture sort of type of hip hop that was going sure, on there. Sure. So it sort of brought people together. And, and I think it just had a profound impact on the city because now a lot of those women have moved on to, you know, do their own thing. They're either organizing festivals in the city, other mm-hmm. places they do workshops, they've, you know, some of them have moved away. Um, but it sort of, there really was a need for this sort of you know, recognition, visibility, and support for women in Detroit hip hop, then I learned from earlier projects that you know it's also important to what, what Kelly was talking about to think about who are the men who are supporting these women. You know, what what are they like? What are their thoughts about some of these issues? Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm intersex, so it was very cool to read this chapter because that masculine of center. I mean, you know, and this is kind of what I think is great about reading these these. I mean, any really great book is like all this new language shows up that I didn't have before. And one of them is this masculine of center concept. And I actually, um, one of the things I've noticed recently, especially with our with our students, I don't know the age group of your students, but mine are, are traditional, traditional age, they're predominantly white institution. And they think that we're having this rap renaissance uh, with women because of like Make the Stallion and uh, Doja Cat, right? Some of these, there's a little Nicki Minaj, but and that's fine. Like I'll rock the shit out of Doja Cat. I'm not. I'm not saying anything's wrong with them. But really, it's such a still such a narrow set of parameters about who can be considered one of the greats. And so then when you look at someone like, or any of the of the of the people in this book, it really still shows you that there's all of this stuff that we're not seeing when we only let ourselves see what sort of the the, the mainstream image of Detroit lets us see. So the book is just. Yeah, I, mean, I, I hate to use the peel away the layers metaphor because it's not demystifying because everything was already there, but it really it's a, it's a whole other look that just opens up possibility in a way that I, I think is just fabulous. The book is just wonderful in that sense. Thank you. Thank you. And that's what I think it is about. Yes. So like, here's what you know what's really happening in Detroit, and then like at the we'll get to this at the end, but like what what kept us going as well was like the freaking talent that's yeah. here. Right? Every one of these artists, male, yeah. female, you know, whatever, um, gender nonconforming, the, the talent oozing out of this city, it was like we couldn't let them down by not writing this book because the world deserves to, to hear them, to hear about them. Um, yeah. So. Oh, definitely. I felt like once we were in, it was all the way in and we were committed to bring in there. It's they're claiming it. I mean, it's not I mean, I mean, that like they want this book to be successful. So people like them get known. Um, and so they've been, you know, wonderful about its, you know, publication and promotion. Yeah, it, it, you can tell this is, I mean, this is a really a community effort. I think we always have this anxiety as academics that like we're so far divorced from our community. I know I certainly feel that way. And this felt genuinely embedded without feeling like, I don't know, like exploitative. It felt very community, which makes sense for the vibe of the foundation. So uh, you did, I don't know if that happened organically or if it was their doing or you sort of saw the, that that needed to, yeah, but it worked great. Well, that's why it took seven years, you know? Yeah, right, right, yeah kind of get down on yourself halfway through that seven year mark. We're like, Oh my God, like what are we <laughs> happening? You know, like, Oh God, why is it taking us so long? You know? And then Kelly was really good about just sort of reminding us that like, could we have done a book quicker? Yes. Would it be this book? No. You know? And we're so yes, much right, right. like, because we were outsiders, it took us a couple of years to even figure out what was going on to even oh, yeah. tease out. Know. 
connections between all these people and these artists and, you know, thinking this goes back in Detroit to the jazz age, like the connections between the mm-hmm. sort of cultural institutions and music and then this sort of social justice, you know, or activist movements happening in the city. And there was just so many spokes to this sort of big wheel, I guess, mm-hmm. that it took a long time to even um, for us to get it. And that was, I think, like crucial. Oh, yeah. Me. We could have written a book where we just analyzed song lyrics and didn't go yeah. anywhere and <laughs> right. done a year. But yeah. we didn't do that. We wanted to talk to producers. We wanted to make sure. art. We wanted to be with them. I mean, we traveled together. We went to conferences together. We had retreats together. I mean, this is... Mm-hmm. And it takes a while, you know, to have, like, Black women, like, um, Honeycomb, talk to us about, like, Tawana, um, talk to us about, feel comfortable telling us about how they feel gentrification in a city has impacted them as Black women. Sure. You know, sure. only too many black women want to just talk to random white women about like, here's the problem with what's happening and how I've been going to this same coffee shop for, you know, 10 or more years and never had a problem. And now because of its location and this really desirable, you know, part of the city, it's been gentrified. Uh, you know, I'm sort of, I guess, you know, not treated the same with the same respect as I, as I once was. Meanwhile, you know, mm. the person from there by, by newcomers to the city. So I think there's a level of trust that needs to be earned before those kinds of conversations we at superficial level happen. Right. We were yeah, there a and- whole year before we got invited to be a member of the collective. Really? Oh, interesting. And, and we like had, did a happy dance. It was like, oh my God. First I went up to Piper and I was like, can I do an interview with you? And I didn't know everything she was into, you know, invested sure. in the city and, she was like, she just looked at me, you know, it's a really skeptical look. And she was like, about what? And I'm like, this. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah. And then I didn't hear from her. So I'm like, but well, we're just going to keep going. And Kelly and I sort of stand out at some of the, the field sites we'd go to. So eventually people got to know us. <laughs> did, yeah. did either of you hop on the mic at any point? Kelly did. Oh, Kelly. Oh, I'm not even going to do it right now, but I so want, I so want. I'm not a rapper. I'm a poet. So I, I right. Did, but you still did the, you still did the I did well, I mean, performances. Yeah. But you know, that's a spectrum. That's a spectrum. I think you can, I think you can claim similar, similar, similar territory on that one. Well, that's so interesting. So you actually, well, and it brings me to, to the chapter four, because chapter four, I thought had a great title. And I think if you had to pick one chapter of the book that uh, it captures kind of like the essence of the book. I think for, for me, it was chapter four anyway, if you really want to get the nutshell of the book. So, and it was, and the title is Vulnerable Mavericks, Wreck Raps Conventions. And so I, it, it struck me that you're sort of vulnerable, maver- that you as the, are, be, are becoming vulnerable mavericks in your embeddedness in this. So, so it's, yeah, so the people in the collective are, but also it's kind of a label for what you're doing as researchers as well. And now the fact that you hopped up and did some of your poetry kind of just reinforces that I had that sense while I was reading the book. Well, thank you. I didn't think not to, not to make it all about you two, but that's my job, right? I'm, I'm hosting the book. So <laughs> it is all about you two. I think everyone should have the experience of participating in a cipher too, which we did on occasion, because if it's something you haven't done before, you don't feel more, right. more vulnerable yeah. than you are in that moment where you're just sort of, yeah. Oh yeah. When you get pulled into a cipher, it's scary. You know, those freestyle circles where you're expected to just follow or in times Mm -hmm. where I've been at a Piper's birthday party and we had to do the dance line, you know, like the soul train. And so, you know, we, we did our white wiggle. (laughs) 
Yeah, see, I could do the dance part, but I could never do a cipher to save my life. We used to do them in high school and it would come to me and it was just like, uh, <laughs> you know. But yeah, but can you say more about that? Because I think the vulnerability, the vulnerable maverick is number one, a nice paradox that sort of captures without having to give itself over to to like right, the, the fragile or the, the resilient because we I think we're all trying to avoid that now. To not yeah. be perceived as weakness or lack, right. that it's right. human and it's a strength. And, you know, the stereotype of the, or the controlling image of the strong black woman presuppose, you know, it precludes the possibility of vulnerability and you have to not mm-hmm. need anybody and just be strong. And that's not human. And too many black women have, have been pushed or propelled into that subject line, you know, yeah. or that role. So, um, and we see their strength and we see their willingness to put, their necks out there. And I think that's where it came from is their more. And it came from the interview from insight too, where she talks about in that chapter, that vulnerability is a strength and her song winner is all about that. So I think that the idea kind of came from how she talks about it, but then how it lays on to all the artists that we've come to know. And and made me think of that. Oh, go ahead. And their music. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Oh, yes. You want to say more about that? About, about different examples or um, where you saw that vulnerability kind of showing up as a strength? Sure. So um, one of the younger people, part of the collective, Neek Love Rhodes, for instance, when we met her, she just graduated from um, oh. college. And um, I think it's in 5-2088, which is her birthday, so we'll never forget it. Um, she has a whole you know verse in there where she talks about sort of the, the challenges she faced growing up, you know, with a, a father who became a drug user and, you know, that ended up with her parents getting a divorce and her living with her mom and how it is that her mom gave her a journal and that, and this part's probably from an interview, but, and how that really like just writing lyrics and stuff like really saved her. They talk a lot about their spirituality. Many, some of them are, you know, well, they're more religious than others, but the relationship to, you know, to God, to their communities, their families, um, some of it's really personal, mm-hmm. and, you know, they're willing to put it out there. And when you ask her about it, she's like, I want other kids to know, you know, that mm-hmm. life isn't perfect for any of us. And it's okay. You can have these crazy challenges in your life and get through them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mahogany wrote, writes about her mother's domestic violence that she's, you know, was subject to um, in a very vulnerable kind and strong sort of way as well. And her track Skin Deep, which is about colorism and how dark-skinned and light-skinned black girls are pitted against each other. Uh, that's heavy personal stuff. And it's the, the power that comes through it is amazing because they own it and they're reflective about it. And then when we show this stuff to our students in class, they can't believe it. They're like, right. oh, we never heard of any of these people. And I think that sets, out, sets off like a light in their head. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, like, for yeah. example, yeah. I, when Amelia was on the radar there for a minute, I showed my students their, her very unfortunate um, music video called Pussy. And then I showed them Mahogany Jones, Skin Deep, and Blue Collar Logic. And they were like, oh, my God, the difference. You know, not that you don't want some ratchet stuff here and there, but when you juxtapose one to the other, it's like night and day. Yeah. Uh, well, I have no love lost over Iggy Azalea's 15 Minutes of Fame. But, I mean, even, like, <laughs> Even like Queen Latifah, you know, if you if you go back to my age group, I mean, she could barely 
Missy Elliott, right? I mean, this stuff does get into the mainstream, but I don't mm-hmm. think people understand how hard it is and how much you have to sell out to get there mm-hmm. and what and what gets lost in that process. And this book really recaptures what a lot of people never get access to, to show them what could be, you know, if we had different access, different avenues of access to things. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then also, there's this principle. I want to just bring this out before we move on to the last part of the book about activism, which I mean we've touched on, but I want to I want to wrap it up. You talk about self care as a community organizing principle. So how does that intersect with with the vulnerability aspects? Where do you see that showing up? And and what's its like not only as like fodder for hip hop, but also community organizing practices. You want to go for it, Becca, or do you want me to? Um. Well, you know, this comes from Audrey Lord. And from her goes to like Sarah Ahmed and was in a post that she wrote. And then, you know, we thank our friend, our fellow hip hop scholar. Do you want to tell everyone, do you want to tell everyone who those people are? Um, Audre Lorde and Sarah Ahmed. Yeah. I mean, they're both public intellect. They were both public intellectuals. Audre Lorde's no longer with us. Uh, Feminist scholars, um, both of whom are gay as well. Um, they're both like activists. Um, so, so this comes out of just their, their writings, you know, they both sort of adopted this idea of self-care um, and they're both women of color, right. And what that needs to be when you are a woman of color and it's sort of like this white world we live in isn't looking out for you, you know, to paraphrase how it isn't self-indulgent to care for yourself, right? That it's self-preservation mm-hmm. and then that, and how important that is and how that in itself is an act of political warfare, right? Mm-hmm. That has to, has to happen. We should advocate for that. Right. And, and what it does, uh, if you connect it to the vulnerable maverick, is that you could read these things as individual, but they're social, right? And so the self-care sure. isn't just care of self, it's care of community, where you, you go beyond the self and reach outward. And the vulnerable maverick can be read as an individual, but it's a social position, right? Where you're free to be vulnerable and strong at the same time. So it's it's an, a new opening for a social way for women to be perceived where they're not punished for being vulnerable right. or strong. And I think it's really important to give that point visibility right now, because yeah. since you wrote that, I've seen more and more stuff about just talking about right, talking about self-care as this, how now it's sort of been distilled into this like non-political sort of thing, you know, where it's just about, it sort of becomes this sort of post-feminist thing where it's just about mostly white women, you know, and individualism. And we're like, no, no, no. So I don't want it to be dismissed just because of, the way it's being talked about right now, I think we need to just sort of bring back this sort of the, the intent, uh, its original intent, I guess. And I think that connection to the vulnerable maverick in the book does that. Well, I also think the fact that one of their modes of self-care is using their their art to give voice to things that in their heads are confusing and terrible and have potential, right? Like, like all the things that we do whenever we write or paint or that hip hop is another one of those things. And self-care has become so consumptive. You buy, you buy, you buy, right? This is creation as an act of self-care and no, and and it's nonprofit, right? It's a nonprofit creative community-based act. And I love that being included in what we describe as self-care because 
I hope that that kind of stuff starts to crowd out bubble baths and I'm not knocking a bubble bath, but like a bubble bath isn't going to do for you what I bet writing a rhyme does for, for anyone who's willing to put themselves out there, like right in the vulnerable maverick way. So I loved that. I love yeah, that aspect of the book. Bring a, it's, I mean, enjoy your bubble bath, but how does that sort of help to create? <laughs> yeah. Moving into that sort of activity. Right. Oh, yeah. Bubble takes you away. It doesn't bring you anywhere. <laughs> right. That's a right. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And then that sort of brings us nicely in um, as we close up into the end of the interview for the last couple of minutes to uh, environmental justice, which we haven't talked a ton about. And then this, this issue of culture of collaborative cultural production. So I think this is a good segue where collaborative cultural production look at versus like cultural production. Like we typically think of it as, as someone else makes it and then we buy it. Right. Yeah. So does that, do, do either of you want to speak to the environmental justice aspect or what that concept of collaborative culture production would look like or, or just hip hop activism in general as we close up? All right, I'll try to start and I'll be brief. So Kelly, jump in whenever. We're, pretty We're good. good. We, ha- we have five or six minutes. <laughs> yeah, again, I'll try to be brief. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> so the environment, you know, some, this sometimes you just don't really know, right, where you're going with stuff. And you, we are also just creating and participating and doing all these things as we work through it, this as, as academics. But, like, I think what we really liked, we talked about environmental activism in a, in a chapter about this track that they created called Legendary, all about, you know, what it's like to, to be a woman in the in the city. And it's very much about the city's history and the city's environment and, and other people, like, Deidre D.S. and Smith has a spoken word po- piece we spent a lot of time on called On My Detroit Everything, where she talks about as well, the ways in which the city has been seen as just a sort of like dumping ground on so many levels over time. I mean, it has one of the most polluted zip codes in the country. You know, there's lots of like, you know, mm-hmm. just, yeah, just sort of problems with like water and, you know, factory sort of um, byproducts and things. And it is so rare that you hear the voices of black women environmental activists, I think, in the mainstream. So that's what I really liked about this chapter is getting to put that out there. Because, you know, I asked a bunch of people, what do you, who do you think of what comes to mind when you think, you know, environmental activists? And no one said black women. Meanwhile, in Detroit, most of the organizations, like environmental and other activist organizations, are headed by black women, you know, but, but they're not really given a voice in even just the local mainstream press or national media. So this is a way to say here are ways in which, you know, black women, women are participating in environmental activism and the way these women in particular are doing it is through hip hop. Right. I'll take that cultural collaborative, cultural production part because making this video is one of those moments where we're all working together. Like Beck and I had, you know, uh, storyboarding responsibilities. We carried the, um, the iPod that had all the soundtrack on it that they wrapped over when we made the video. We sat in the back seat and Becca held it. You know, we, we helped them, you know, decide which outfits to change into. Um, and they embodied all of hip hop aesthetics, right? They were improvisational. They had this base of knowledge that they, they shifted from context to context, from scene to scene. We got an urban farm. We got a really bright and happy looking mural. We got another uh, mural that's in the backyard of somebody where chickens were running around. And we all did that together. I mean, they came with the two artists, Mahogany and uh, Neek, came with suitcases of clothes and they changed outfits in their hair in between scenes. And we shot it all in one day 
Um, and then Piper edited it. And the whole process, I mean, when they found out about what we were going to do, all they had that they agreed upon together was a beat. They wrote their verses independent, and then we put them all together. So what Kelly's talking about is that we this track wouldn't exist except that we responded to a call from the American Musicological Association Conference that was looking for like video pieces that dealt with like space and place and identity. Huh. So yeah. we just them with that call. And this is what they came up with. Wow. So collaborative from the very beginning. And it was a pretty awesome experience to go to the, for all of us to go to the conference and present it. Cause um, I'll just say we stood out at that conference. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to see the video, cause it's not in too many places, the journal music and politics, it's, Got, you know, run by University of Michigan is an open source journal. And in it, the video exists and all the footage that Beck and I shot of Detroit um, that taps into different environments, urban farms versus corporations versus the river, that kind of thing. What's it called? The Journal of Music, Mu- and, Digital- Music and Politics. I will find the link and put it in the show notes for anyone listening. I'd also like to see it. It, it was I, I knew about it because of the book, but I hadn't actually looked it up yet. So that'll be great. I'll put that in the show notes. Great. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I think it speaks to is just how much urban activism is environmental activism. And yet we think of those things as two different things. And that's obviously part of the problem. Right. And and by the end of this book, when you hear environmental justice or environmental activism, suddenly Detroit's part of that picture. And it's amazing what that picture, how that picture changes once Detroit gets added in there. Because like fighting for that urban space is part of what it means to like fight for environmental justice. And I don't think we know. I mean, I wasn't thinking about it that way. Like you said, who, who are some great environmental activists? When you think about them, they're white, at least for me. Yeah, right. And this really, really drew, drew that into sharp relief that I hadn't been considering how, how important these other aspects are that get hidden out of what, what's considered mainstream environmental justice movements. Well, sure. Everyone deserves and wants, you know, clean air, land. Yeah, absolutely. Water, water rights is a huge, huge issue, you know, in Detroit. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Flint, Flint, Michigan, right? It's I mean that's that's part of Detroit. It's all kind of part of the same cluster. Yeah, we, uh, we, <sighs> well, yeah. we a number of events about uh, you know water mm-hmm. and water crisis. So yeah, hip hop I think is a really effective and fascinating, I guess, organizing culture <laughs> has a lot built into it from the very beginning. You know. It's just right, that kind sure. of gets lost along the way. And we just wanted to bring that back. It, it came from the streets and, you know, before it went commercial and what we experienced wasn't like street, you know, life, right, right. but yeah. definitely not in traditional commercial outlets. Um, uh, even when it's a studio, they're just and not the big life. It's a more accurate representation of what street life is. Exactly. Well, Rebecca and Kelly, I just want to thank you both again so much for being here. This was an absolute treat. Uh, And again, to Piper Carter and Mahogany Jones, who wrote the forewords for the book, who obviously could not be here because we can't put five people on an interview as much as I wish we could. So for everyone listening at home, we have been interviewing Rebecca Ferruja and Kelly Hay, who are the authors of the fabulous new book, Women Rapping Revolution, Hip Hop and Community Building in Detroit. And that comes from the University of California Press right fresh off the presses this year. If you are interested, you can check out the website, University of California Press. Um, Also, feel free to connect with myself, your host, or Rebecca or Kelly on social media. All of our information, as well as our emails, will be in the show notes if available. And I just want to encourage everyone, University of California Press is one of the many university presses 
um, helping us to get out really important work like this, doing thorough editing and, and just supporting really complex idea development in a way that a lot of trade paperbacks and, you know, the kinds of books you find at Barnes and Noble don't often do. So if you're not interested in getting a copy of the book for yourself to help support really important work like this, to support the university presses who make New Books Network possible, also consider maybe picking up a hard copy and um, giving it to your local library or asking a library in a more affluent neighborhood if they're able to purchase a copy for circulation. That allows you to support the authors, it allows you to help contribute to NBN, and it also allows you to get these really important ideas out to the people that need them. And don't forget to check out the foundation, which is the hip hop collective um, studied in the book, Women Rapping Revolution. Thank you all again for listening. Take good care of yourselves.